walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 53. I'm Dave Woodson. Nobody asked me my name. It's now mid-February 2020. Here in Portland, Oregon, Hundreds of thousands of people had their power knocked out for several days over this past weekend as a consequence of a historic snow and ice storm. And given what continues to unfold in Texas, we can, on the whole, count ourselves lucky. Five months ago, thousands here were forced to evacuate their homes as a consequence of wildfires, while everyone else was compelled to shelter in place, (laughs) doubly so given the pandemic in order to minimize their exposure to the toxic air. These fires are a growing threat out here, and we're not alone. I know Australia in particular was hit very hard over this last year. As we grapple with the emerging consequences of climate change, that has specific relevance to pilgrimage as well. Historic heat waves have blasted Western Europe in recent summers, elevating the threat of forest fires there as well. Meanwhile, researchers from MIT and Loyola Marymount have recently projected that when the Hodge cycles back to summer months in the 2040s and 50s, conditions in Saudi Arabia may already be so hot and humid that pilgrims will face extreme danger from harmful health effects. A major part of the power and magic of pilgrimage is how it immerses us in the natural world, while the physical shrines are human-built in most cases, They're often situated in places of natural splendor. In that way, pilgrimage and the environment are inextricably connected. And this episode is a deep dive into that relationship from a few different perspectives. It's a long episode with guests joining me from the Philippines, Australia, England, and Utah, USA. But it's well worth the time, I think. I'll be quick in the setup, though. Up first, you'll hear from Yeb Sanyo, a leading environmental activist in Southeast Asia who has now led multiple climate pilgrimages in the Philippines and Europe. Then two professors, Kiran Shinde and Daniel Olson, join me to discuss their research on the relationship between religious tourism and the environment. Finally, Reverend Canon Caroline Pinchbeck from the York Diocese in England shares her perspective from her work with the European Green Pilgrimage Network a faith-based network of pilgrimage sites. I learned a ton making this episode, and I suspect you will as well. Thanks for listening. Yeb Sanyo is one of the world's leading climate activists. After previously leading the World Wildlife Fund's Energy and Climate Program and serving as the Philippines Climate Change Commissioner, he currently serves as the Executive Director of Greenpeace Southeast Asia. In addition, Yeb has led multiple climate-focused pilgrimages, including the People's Pilgrimage in 2015 and the Climate Pilgrimage in 2018. Thanks for speaking with me, Yeb. And let's start here. What first led you to devote your career to the issue of climate change. Origins of my passion for the environment and in particular on climate 
the answer is never simple. I tried to retrace my steps and which led me to where I am right now. But it's always a journey, a complex journey that starts from, of course, your upbringing. And I do credit my parents for all of this. So my parents were imprisoned during the martial law years in the Philippines. And they've always taught us how to stand up for what is right and never to sit on the fence in the face of injustice, never to sit on the fence. I've taken that inspiration from my childhood and I guess my my siblings as well because my siblings are also very active in the climate movement. And so for those were the beginnings, but I do remember a very specific incident in my life. I planted a tree, a tree in, in the front yard of our house, a house that did not belong to us that, that we were renting when I was 12 years old. And then I, I took care of that tree, I nurtured it, and uh, one day I found myself you know, very devastated because when I went home, the tree was gone. Somebody had cut it down. And that experience was traumatic for me as a young child who took care of a tree of a living creature. And, and so I translated that pain into a resolve that I would take care of every other tree in the world. Of course, as a young child, now seems to me as very simplistic view, but now I see that that period translated into so much more realizations over time, and now I'm here. But one thing also interesting, Davis, I was a science editor in my high school paper, and I realized, and this where I felt my, my memory was tricking me, because I realized going back to the articles I wrote in high school, almost all of those were about climate at a very early time when, when nobody talked about climate. So I realized that my foundations around this issue go a long way back. And now I feel very strongly about it. But just to complete that little story around my journey, I realized also how profound the impacts are on people and in particular on communities in my own country. And in 2013, when I was the chief climate negotiator for my country in the UN climate negotiations, one of the most tragic things happened when the strongest storm on record made landfall in my family's hometown, Super Typhoon Haiyan. My brother almost did not survive that typhoon. And when I was in the climate summit in Poland, just a couple of days after the typhoon left a massive wake of devastation in my country, I was left with the duty of speaking for my country. And that made me very emotional. And I actually broke down in tears. After that, I realized so much more need to be communicated to the entire world about this reality. And I initiated one of the first uh, long pilgrimages that I have done uh, in my life. And we walked from or what we call kilometer zero in the heart of the Philippine capital in Manila, or on zero in Tacloban City, on, on the first anniversary of Super Typhoon Ayan. And then we kind of made a habit out of it. In 2015, we walked from Rome to Paris, which was basically a spiritual journey, a pilgrimage, walking through the Alps into France and all the way to Paris in time for the Paris Climate Summit. And then in 2018, we did another climate pilgrimage from Rome, again, all the way to Katowice in Poland. So how did you make that leap from all of this work that you've done involving climate policy initiatives at the state level and through NGOs to the idea of climate pilgrimage? Why pilgrimage? That's a very good question, Dave. I really felt that pilgrimages represent a kind of an act of peace for the earth. It represents a message to slow down because you need to take it one day at a time when you need to take it one step at a time and it also is a demonstration of the will and the urgency of this issue 
but highlights it in a way that you're able to interact with people so meaningfully when you're walking. So we, we felt that walking from one place to another is a beautiful act of solidarity with people affected by climate impacts. You mentioned the spiritual aspect in particular of the 2015 pilgrimage. Is faith a part of this as well? And what role does it play for you as a part of the work towards climate reform? Absolutely. Faith, I believe, plays a very important part in this for several important reasons. The first one is that indeed we do have an ecological crisis before us. But unless we look into our heart, then we will never be able to solve that crisis. It, it will never be solved merely by technological solutions, not by political solutions alone. But we need to look at this as a moral crisis. And when I say faith, it has really, I mean, part of it includes our faith traditions. But for me, it has a lot more about our moral duty to take care of the earth so that future generations can continue to be supported by nature and by the resources of this planet. For me, that's what it means. But also, the, the other important issue is that majority of people who live on this earth have faith traditions. And only then can we truly change the power dynamics that govern our societies. Truly, we can shift the mindsets of billions of people if we go through the faith traditions as an anchor. Because I, I've looked at every faith tradition, mine as well, in particular, the Catholic tradition. And the teachings around care for creation, taking care of nature is very strong in every faith tradition. And what we have come to right now as a global family is very far from the teachings of all of these faith traditions in terms of taking care of our planet. So I think we need to go back to that and so that we can resonate with more people. And that's crucial if we are to race against time. I want to talk about the 2015 and 2018 pilgrimages in more detail because that's what we do here. I'm curious because I, I know what it's like, or at least what it's often like for people walking some of these big resurgent pilgrim roads like the Camino de Santiago, but I have no idea how you approached it. So how, how did you go about planning this pilgrimage from Rome to Paris? Yeah, I mean, every journey, of course, is a result of a previous one. That's always my philosophy. So it is guided by a previous one. And as I mentioned earlier, we did this long journey from Manila to Tacloban, 1,000 kilometers. And we were staying in churches, in, in schools, in, in village halls, but mostly supported by churches along the way. And we found that was not just convenient, but we found it was very meaningful to be engaging with faith communities along the way. When we finished the Manila Tacloban pilgrimage, it was very natural for our group to think that, oh, wow, why don't we do this on a global scale? And so we started reaching out to, to other people. And I ended up working with a group called Green Faith. It's a global organization, but based in New Jersey. And it's an interfaith community whose intention is to truly rally people behind the clamor for taking care of the environment, but in particular to take ambitious climate actions. I got in touch with, with a lot of people uh, in the interfaith community and also the global Catholic climate movement was born after Super Typhoon Haiyan. And it just fell naturally into place. The pilgrimage was a vital element in many faith traditions. And so 
Rome to Paris was created. The first step there was, of course, to get the blessings from Pope Francis. So we, we had an audience with Pope Francis uh, at the start of the pilgrimage, but not for no extraordinary reason. It was very extraordinary year. 2015 was the year when he came out with Laudato Si, his, his green encyclical. And so we felt it would have been really a great symbolic gesture, but also a very meaningful act to carry his encyclical literally in our hands and walking all the way to Paris to present the encyclical to uh, world leaders. And that was the idea behind that pilgrimage. Planning it was complex. We obviously were aliens to Europe. Walking in Europe, we've done bits and pieces of that, but walking for a thousand kilometers over the Alps was alien to us who lived in the tropics. So there was a lot of planning involved there, a lot of challenges that we identified. And even to the last minute, we were not even sure how, how we would overcome those challenges, but we went ahead and we did it. We also of course, talked about resourcing and funding, and there were a lot of groups who were willing to fund such a crazy idea. I'm wondering, with this pilgrimage, is the act of pilgrimage a process of raising awareness for then what will happen in Paris? Or is the climate activism woven into every day? Like, is that part of what you're doing in communities as you walk? Both, actually, both. One of the beautiful realizations for us on that journey was that we were bringing our stories. It was mainly a story around the reality of the climate crisis and how it is profoundly affecting many communities around the world. And in particular, of course, Super Typhoon Haiyan was very fresh during that time. And how we wanted to bring that voice into the homes of people, especially in Europe, where we felt uh, the climate issue needed a little bit of a boost. And so on the other hand, yes, was our way of you know, galvanizing support for the imperatives of the Climate Summit in Paris. So both of those objectives were there for that journey. You've mentioned the Alps a couple of times, and I've crossed the Alps a number of times walking to Rome. So I'm wondering, where did you cross the Alps and, and what was that experience like for you? Yes, we were planning on different routes, whether it was to the west of Italy into eastern France, or we would go up Great St. Bernard Pass into Geneva, and we took the Great St. Bernard Pass into Geneva. There was a lot of anxiety about that. It's uh, the highest road on that route, and as citizens of a country where the average temperature is 25 degrees, we were very worried about doing that. But then we found a lot of support. We had a lot of friends helping out. We took the Ayosta Valley route into Great St. Bernard Pass. Beautiful, beautiful landscape there. But what struck us when we got to the top of the pass was our expectations were absolutely far from what was becoming a reality there. Because of climate change, perhaps, our anticipation of dangerous avalanches and snowfall during the time there was very little snow, really. Of course, there was ice and there was snow on the road, but uh, nothing of the sort uh, made us filled with anxiety. So when we got there, it was a pretty nice stroll over the, the Great St. Bernard Pass. We spent a night at the lodge there, and then we set out the next morning walking down the highway. Fantastic. I'm glad you got to go through there. It's beautiful. What was arrival like in Paris for you at the end of this first big 
European pilgrimage, arriving for the UN Climate Summit. How would you characterize that experience? I would characterize that experience in two ways. One, despite of everything, it was a magical experience for us. Why? Because when we arrived there, so we were one group of pilgrims coming from Rome and carrying Laudato Si, the Pope's encyclical with us. And then we realized, and we, there were about 20 of us on the pilgrimage from Rome to Paris on a regular basis. Of course, our group swelled to about 2000 at one point when young people were walking with us in southern France. And in, in, in some villages in Italy, there were hundreds of people who were walking with us. But on a regular basis, there were about 20 pilgrims. But when we got to Paris, we were pleasantly surprised, of course. We knew some of it. But when we got there, we realized there were thousands of other people joining hundreds of other pilgrim groups uh, from different places around Europe. And we converged at St. Mary's Cathedral in Paris. It was a beautiful congregation, a beautiful convergence of all the pilgrims. But the other part of it was uh, a bit of what I would characterize as a frustration. Why? Because we envisioned our arrival in Paris to have been a lot more celebratory. But because of the terror attacks before the climate summit in that year, gatherings were prohibited. We were even told that walking together in a group, more than a group of five, was not allowed during that time. So we were, it was very subdued entrance into Paris. We were envisioning like a grand march into Paris together with other groups, not just pilgrims, but of course other parts of the climate movement welcoming all of the people walking into Paris. That never happened, Dave. And for us, that was a painful thing because we planned this for a long time and we walked for such a long distance. But for me, uh, let me just describe to you how I entered Paris, literally. On that border from the last town into Paris, I was walking because we had to split ourselves into groups. I walked with my brother into Paris, A.G., who survived Super Typhoon Ayan. I walked with him into Paris, and we just crossed that border, and we just hugged each other. And we have a picture of that. And for me, that was also the magical part of it. For me, that was a beautiful moment uh, that will always be etched in my heart. That image, for me, gives so much worthwhile meaning to that journey. And having walked that pilgrimage with my pilgrim brother, I think that was a beautiful conclusion to that entire pilgrimage. I read that there was a demonstration involving shoes in Paris. Can you tell me about it? Yes. So when we arrived in Paris, obviously demonstrations involving groups of people were not allowed. So a group of climate activists, including NGOs, thought of an idea. I think Avas led this entire action. And there was an idea just to gather all the shoes in Plaza de la République in the heart of Paris to demonstrate, of course, among others, the imperatives of climate action as a, a strong signal to world leaders arriving in Paris, but also to make it clear that even with restrictions around that time, people can still stand in solidarity, even symbolically. So thousands of shoes were there. If, if I remember it right, 10,000 pairs of shoes were in that plaza, including Pope Francis sending his uh, pair of shoes. And then I was given the honor of putting my pilgrim shoes right beside the Pope's shoes during that time. It was a beautiful moment as well, Dave. So you did that in 2015. And then three years later, you were back in Rome to walk to Poland this time for another UN summit. 
And before you said every trip builds on the previous trip. So what did you do in 2018? What did you keep from 2015? And, and what did you change? What did you learn? Yeah, there were a lot of learnings, including lessons about the human spirit. I would say that every day was filled with adventure, but there were also a lot of days where as a leader, I had to manage how people interacted with each other. It's a traveling group. It's a traveling community where real human emotions are involved and, and you know human dynamics are involved. So but these are a group of like-minded people who have profoundly shared a, a common vision around the future of our world. And so that held us intact. That gave us a lot of sense of belonging, but also a, a sense of solidarity. And so we, we brought all of this inspiration into the 2018 pilgrimage uh, after learning a lot of lessons. We pretty much had a good number of people from the 2015 pilgrimage joining us in the 2018 pilgrimage, both from the Philippines and from many parts of the world. And of course, the choice of doing that again in 2018 is significant because what was 2018 about? I mean, why did it represent such an important milestone for the international climate process? 2018 was uh, supposed to be a very important year for that process because it was supposed to be the deadline for the rule book for the Paris Agreement. And the Paris Agreement would have been rendered meaningless if the rule book was not agreed in 2018 in Poland, in Katowice. So that's why we decided, oh, this is an important year for the political process. So we would want to galvanize support for it. But also, just to be very frank about this, Poland as a country within the EU context has been a problem climate-wise. So we felt that this was a genuinely opportune time for us to have a pilgrimage. And Poland itself, of course, is a largely Catholic country. So we felt the opportunity was there for us to connect so strongly with the faith community there. And we thought that the concept of a pilgrimage as well would resonate well with the people of Poland. And it did. It was a beautiful journey. 2015 also taught us about, a lot about logistics, how to do the pilgrimage better. One of the things we did between 2015 and 2018 was we studied the Camino de Santiago, how it was done. We watched Martin Sheen's movie about it. And we got a lot of insights from people who had walked the Camino de Santiago. Some of us have done it. Some of the pilgrims have done it the entire route. And so there was a lot of wisdom into it. We took those lessons. We planned accordingly. It was a much, much better planned pilgrimage uh, in 2018. And the big contrast there is 2015 was three countries, basically two countries plus one city of Geneva. But the 2018 pilgrimage was six countries plus Vatican. So effectively seven countries there in 2018. So much more complex, more languages to be spoken. So it was a tall order, but we got there. You started talking about what the experience was like and what was different being in Poland. So I just want to invite you to continue down that road. What does stand out to you about that? Well, what stands out, of course, is something that made us very sad. Along the route in the middle of the journey, one of the pilgrims died in his sleep. So I pay homage to our fellow pilgrim, Alan Burns, who comes from Charlotte. And he died in uh, Slovenia. Just one morning, he wouldn't wake up. What struck us about that experience, tragic as it is, when I had a difficult task of speaking to his family about his death, his wife told us he died where he is supposed to be and doing what he loved doing. 
being there, walking with you on a pilgrimage that he truly believes in. And so that just left me flabbergasted about the character of this guy and the character of this family, just being so generous and gracious, even in the face of that tragedy. And you know what? He did choose a really nice spot to, to go, to pass away. And now his remains are on top of a hill in a beautiful mountaintop in Ljubljana in Slovenia. So we can visit him there when we go there. But it's a very nice place. He will forever be remembered there. So that stands out, obviously, as part of the journey. And that experience wove into every day of our journey. So we took his shoes with us and both my brother and I would alternate carrying his shoes because he really wanted to reach Poland. And Slovenia was still about, what, three countries away. So we took his shoes with us. And when we arrived in Poland, just sort of a fast forward to our arrival, it was a very emotional arrival because, of course, at the center of our focus were Alan's shoes, bringing it uh, with us and arriving in, in Poland with his shoes. So he made the journey with us. But another thing that stood out really is, as I mentioned earlier, how we were able to connect so wonderfully with uh, people along the way. But in particular, Poland, especially that southern region of Poland, which depended, relied so much on the coal industry. So every home burned coal, Coal miners lived there, so a lot of coal communities, coal-dependent, coal industry-dependent communities living in those areas where we walked through. And they hosted us, they made us live in their homes and gave us food. And for us, we had amazing conversations with many of them on how things are. And for me, that's beautiful in a pilgrimage. You pass all kinds of judgment and you just relate with people. And we realize we're all in this together. The climate crisis is a lot more complex than just merely activists saying, let's solve this problem. There are people there who live day-to-day breathing dirty air, right? Uh, and I've never gone on a pilgrimage where you walk through a city literally with fumes around you and black smoke coming from every chimney because that was almost the start of winter and people were burning a lot of coal literally as we walked through the towns and that gave a lot of texture to our conversations with them and we realized that not all of them would want to continue living that way and so it was very meaningful experience for us to have met those people that they have opened their eyes to this reality and that indeed the desire and the aspiration for a greener planet uh, is not a monopoly that we have you didn't need these pilgrimage experiences to be invested in and to care about our natural world. That's already been your work. It's been your focus since childhood, as you said. But I wonder if being out on the land day after day, walking through so many different ecosystems changed or otherwise had an impact on your thinking about our world and climate change and just nature generally. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Every single encounter with nature changes you, really. It's life-changing. A pilgrimage like this is life-changing. Every single pilgrim who has walked with us, when they are asked, how would you describe this pilgrimage? Everyone will say it was life-changing. Not only in the way we view the world, but as you're referring to, Dave, how we look at nature, how we appreciate the beauty around us. And we did walk through some wonderful landscape. It was probably some of the most beautiful scenery I've seen in my journeys. 
I mean, Tuscany is beautiful and a lot of the Slovenia landscape is amazing. The areas around the rivers that meander through Austria, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, also Poland, those are quite amazing places. And not just in terms of aesthetic beauty, but for me, uh, and then walking through the Alps as well, for me, it reminds me of what is at stake here. And while, as you say, my passion for the environment goes a long way back, I'm mindful of both the limited experience I've had because I, I do live in a tropical country and being able to walk through a temperate region like Europe gives me, a, of course, a new perspective on how things work ecosystem-wise and how it interacts with, how nature interacts with human beings and vice versa. And also, I'm mindful of my privilege as well because while I come from a developing country, I am not a rich person, but I am educated. I have the privilege of being able to walk on these pilgrimages when others would probably find it even hard to walk from their home to their school, right? In many difficult places on earth. I take it as a blessing every day. And in the 2015 pilgrimage, our mantra every day was Onya Pasoconta. It's Italian for every step counts. So we, we take it one step at a time. We learn a lot of things and Obviously, it reinforces our belief that the world is worth taking care of and nature deserves to be defended. How do you stay optimistic in this work? If I just contain us to the last 10 years, really, the message keeps coming louder and louder that we are approaching the point of no return, that we are past the point of no return, that serious action is needed, and yet it seems like very little serious action is coming. What keeps you hopeful and focused and working in the face of all of that? I have a short answer to that, and I have an elaborate answer to that. My short answer to that is, is the only choice we have to remain optimistic, to remain hopeful. Because if we are not, then what's the point of living? What's the point of talking about this issue anyway, right? So for me, I use the same reasons that make me lose sleep at night as the same reasons for me to get out of bed in the morning. It's as simple as that for me. But you're right, there's a lot of temptation to waste the opportunity to make a difference. There's a lot of temptation to just lose hope and just give up. But you know what I do? I have two children now. My son is, has just turned 17. My daughter is 13. All I simply do is I look at them every morning and I try to look them in their eyes. And as long as every morning I can look into their eyes and tell them I've done my best and I keep doing my best, then that gives me hope. 2015, you made a pilgrimage to the UN Climate Summit. 2018, you made the pilgrimage. I'm just doing the math here three years, 2021 is coming up. Is another one in the cards? I'm not sure if you teach math, but you got your math <laughs> really, really spot on, Dave. We were supposed to be on a pilgrimage this year, actually, but COVID-19 happened. That's true for a lot of us. <laughs> so yes, uh, we were supposed to be walking from Paris all the way to Scotland, to Glasgow, for the very important climate summit again. And we had big plans around it. And of course, we had to shelf it uh, for this year. But if the Glasgow Climate Summit happens next year, we have plans of walking from Paris to Glasgow. There are people listening and 
there are chronic pilgrims listening who walk year after year after year, and they're often looking for new routes, new possibilities, new ways to engage. Is this something where anyone can reach out and say, hey, I want to join the climate pilgrimage? Oh, absolutely. 2015 and 2018 were all about inclusiveness, and we welcome everyone into the pilgrimages, whether you walk in on a day or join us the entire journey. This is not something we own as a property. This does not merely belong to us. This belongs to all of humanity. It is merely our our way of expressing that, and everyone is welcome to join us, of course. So Paris to Glasgow is in the works, and we hope a lot of people join us. What's the timeline, and how would they find you? So right now, I it is still, of course, being planned, and it really depends on what happens with COVID-19. If the world gets vaccinated soon enough, then there's a good chance we will do it. We're working backwards because the Climate Summit starts, I think, on November 2nd. We'll have to confirm those dates as we go along. But yeah, working backwards is a, about a thousand kilometers route, a little less, uh, actually, but it's much shorter than Rome to Paris. We think 60 days is just the right amount of time to do that. So working backwards, that will mean probably walking the entire month of October and parts of a good deal of September. Well, I look forward to reading about it as you proceed. And I appreciate your work and appreciate you speaking with me about it. So thank you, Yeb. Thank you very much, Dave. Dr. Kieran A. Shinde is currently teaching at the University of Melbourne in Australia. He's been working in the field of religious tourism for more than 15 years and has published scholarly papers on various aspects of religious tourism, including environmental issues, cultural heritage, and policies and governance. Dr. Daniel H. Olson is an associate professor in the Department of Geography at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. His research interests revolve around religious and spiritual tourism, heritage tourism, and the management of sacred sites. They together are the co-editors of Religion, Tourism, and Spiritual Journeys, and also Religious Pilgrimage Routes and Trails. And I'm glad to be able to speak with them now. So Kieran and Daniel, let's start here. What makes this subject, the relationship between the environment and pilgrimage, a matter of interest to each of you? As a geographer, one of the things I'm really interested in is human nature interactions. And when you take a look at tourism, tourism does an awful lot of damage to the environment. But it's just not tourism. It's the whole idea of mobility. It's people who are flying, who are emitting CO2 into the atmosphere. It's about building buildings over top of wetlands. And so as someone that studies religion and tourism, one of the things that I've noted is that there are a lot of people on the move. The United Nations World Tourism Organization suggests that there are anywhere between 300 and 600 million people a year that visit a religious site. That's a lot of environmental damage that takes place. And no one has really talked about the natural environment. Kieran has written a few things on it. So have some other people, but no one's really looked at it as a serious topic of study because pilgrims don't damage the environment. It's tourists that do this. But pilgrimage and the whole process of, of traveling, doesn't matter what your motivation is, you are going to leave some sort of ecological footprint. And so that was kind of the basis of why I thought this would be a really good book to put together. Kieran? 
all the reasons that Daniel's mentioned, but I came in into the subject in about 2001, 2002, when I was doing my master's thesis a long time ago. And I was looking at religion more as a source of inspiration to manage our environments. Because I come from India and you know, one of the things that we always say is, you've got a problem in life, go to the God, right? So when I said, well, we have got cities that have got environmental problems, so can God help us? And where do you find this? In places where you can actually find God. And that's the sacred places. So people go to pilgrim towns, pilgrim sacred landscapes and all of that. And I thought, okay, this is a place where we can start looking at religion and environment interaction. And guess what happens? Because you've got hundreds and thousands and millions of people coming in there, the environments here are really messy. And then there is a whole range of things that's going on. And particularly if you talk of India, Pandalpur pilgrimage, which is 500,000 people walking 24 days, that's going to be huge. But still, over years, the, the numbers that we are seeing in these sacred places are just keep increasing. So what is this happening? How are they intersecting with this place? Does physical environment not bother them? Because there are problems which we all know, solid waste, just an example. And if you look at what's happening in the consumer society today, everybody carries a drink bottle with them. So when you've got so many people coming in and just the most visible form is the solid waste. But we need to go beyond that. So that was my entry point into the whole conversation. And the last almost two decades now, I've been working on this deeper connections between why the environment is the way it is because of pilgrimage. And there are a lot of religious, cultural, spiritual reasons behind it. And that's what we try to unpack through this work. You've already addressed some of the common issues that are going to emerge with any form of large-scale travel and tourism. Inevitably, there are going to be environmental challenges. Are there some specific issues involving the environment and sustainability that are distinct to religious travel and tourism? In some ways, not, because a lot of pilgrims, they walk, they ride their bikes, they drive, they take airplanes, they take buses. And so a lot of the modes of transportation are very similar to what tourists would do. One of the interesting things that we discussed in our book was the fact that there seems to be a theological disconnect between this idea that we need to be stewards of the earth, we need to protect nature and preserve it, and then all the damage that is done when people actually travel. And in many cases, there are people that will say, I know I'm causing damage, but I'm traveling because it's God's will, because God wants me to do so. So any damage as being done to the environment, God will forgive me for. Plus, we have the government, and their job is to clean up the environment after us. And so it doesn't really bother us that we're causing these issues because someone else is going to take care of it. God will take care of it for us. And so that was one of the kind of the things that we talked about, again, in the book. But that's kind of what makes the environment an important issue in religious tourism. Again, that disconnect between... Uh, the theology of what you should be doing and how you actually act when you travel. In fact, that's a very interesting contradiction. And that's what sparked my interest in the whole subject. Because when I was talking about the religion environment interaction, what had captured my imagination at that point was there was a call for tree plantation, a very large scale tree plantation under the name of Krishna, which is one of the Hindu gods. It was a very big project of restoring forests, which were dedicated to God. Krishna. And this was supported by WWF, which was 
World Wildlife Fund from UK. And, and that's where at one level, there was this interpretation of religion and thought in more practical ways of restoring and rejuvenating certain sacred places. That's why I actually went into some of these places to, to see how this is translated. But when you go there, when you have hundreds and thousands, millions of people there doing the God's will and God's work, as Daniel says, so by themselves, in their mind, they're not causing any problems, neither for the local residents, because they're born in that place, it doesn't really bother. Everything will be taken care of God. I mean, one of my papers quote this all the time, you know, Krishna will take care of us. When I was interviewing someone, a lady comes in and says, oh, then will Krishna bring the water for me from the, you know, the public tap? Or will Krishna clean up all the garbage which is on my street? So those are the kind of contradictions that come into play here. So when you leave everything to the God, and that's very peculiar to religious travel. Also, the idea is pilgrimages in the, in the traditional sense. Once somebody left home, there's no guarantee that they'll come back. So pilgrimages to the unknown was already kind of the most important aspect of pilgrimage. So in that sense, everything is blamed on something else in religious travel. That's one. The second, the players in religious travel and religious tourism are very different from the traditional or the conventional tourism economy. In tourism, we've got all these economic enterprises. So you've got a tour operator, you've got a hotel, and they're all kind of regulated and registered, and they are a large part of the formal economy. With religious travel, they're part of a large informal economy because religious organizations, unlike in the Western society, are not regulated in the non-Western societies. They're informal enterprises. So that's another big reason why we have the, some of the problems related to environment. It's easy when discussing the environment to focus on the things that we're doing poorly and <laughs> what we're, how we're failing with regards to sustainability and protecting the environment. Are there sacred destinations, shrines, pilgrimage sites that stand out in terms of responding well to these issues? Are there best practices that have emerged for attending to the environment responsibly and stewarding it responsibly within the realm of pilgrimage? That is a really good question. That's really hard, especially when a lot of religious sites are self-maintaining. One case study that I think I, I'm pretty sure I mentioned in the book was in Africa, where there's a lot of deforestation taking place. It's actually in the monasteries where you actually find the biodiversity is being preserved because they don't cut down their forest as part of the ambience, as part of the spirituality of those particular locations. So in many cases, religious sites actually become sinks for biodiversity. But in many cases, a lot of religious sites are in urban areas. And so talking about the natural environment isn't really an issue. But I think about, for example, the Kumamela. 120 million people show up and it's in a natural area. And just when you have that many people that show up, how can you ever be sustainable? And so I don't know if I know of any case studies that stand out to me because in our book, we, we took the environment very broadly, this idea, it's not just natural, but also human built as well. So if you talk about human built natural environment, it's usually the religious sites that have money that can work on the aesthetics and the wear and tear but when you have a lot of religious sites in the world that just don't make enough money to really manage their sites well, that's where a lot of those environmental problems come in. In terms of sustainability, 
some of these sacred sites are also in, in very fragile areas, fragile ecosystems. Now that's where crowd controls make a lot of sense in trying to limit the damage. Of course, one of the fundamental principles that we are working here in our book and more broadly is every human being, regardless of the motivation, how good they are in their intentions of not causing any trouble, they're just hundreds and thousands and millions of them. So therefore they are going to use certain resources and generate certain waste. Now you can put a balance and checks on both the sides, but still there's going to be some or the other impact, right? So how much can a place absorb in terms of impacts? So fragile ecosystems are the first ones to go. And therefore, there you have the crowd control. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're sustainable, right? So you could see less damage, but it does not mean it's sustainable. Some of the classic examples for this are in the Himalayas or in the higher mountains, where, for example, in Avarnath Yatra, one of the pilgrimages in the Himalayas, it's, it's dependent on a natural formation. If more number of people go there, glaciers or this kind of snow starts melting down and that becomes a problem. So it cannot be managed in any ways because it's a natural process. Or the Kailas Mansarovar, which is right, the Mount Meru and all of that. So those natural systems are very, very difficult to work in terms of sustainability. But we definitely talk about the more urbanized, and in fact, urbanization of sacred places itself is a big problem. Any famous pilgrimage site, if you see, so maybe it's Lourdes, maybe it's Fatima, maybe it's Benares or wherever, they're all highly urbanized because of religion, because of religious infrastructure, the number of pilgrim inns that you find, the number of ashrams you find, the number of dharamshalas you find, they all alter the landscape that we are talking about, the sacred landscape, right? the holy land. All of that is transformed anyways. So how do you start thinking anything as sustainable because this already altered? What we tend to do then is try to see how much can we cater to the influx of visitors that becomes the yardstick for measuring a good practice, right? Even uh, Hajj and, and Daniel and some of his research students have worked on and, and colleagues from UK have worked on Hajj. And you say, everybody thinks Hajj is the, one of the best managed, but it has its own problems. So wherever we have the scale, that's a first challenge to the sustainability. So we can't find a best practice simply because of the scale. The second is the control of sacred sites, a control of pilgrimage towns. Traditionally, most pilgrim times have had a conflict. There's a religious conflict, the kind of religious organizations are there. Because they're religious, they are not government. And because they're religious, the government doesn't interfere. If nobody takes care of responsibility of this managing of this site. The second is who should be catered to when we're managing? Is this the visitors or the residents? Because both of them are very different constituencies. Visitors cannot vote, residents can vote, but visitors are the one who bring in money. The residents don't, right? So there's a whole kind of a complexity that comes in. And this is that institutional vacuum that really causes the biggest threat to the sustainability of these sites. So that's one of the reasons why we can't find many successful examples. The moment you say one is successful, so for example, there is the new pilgrim trail that's coming up in South Korea, Bakedugan. The wellness tourism has lashed onto this idea of walking pilgrimages in Japan, right? 10 people are doing it in a month. That's sustainable. But because those 10 people had some very good experiences, in the next year, you've got 100 people doing it. 
And because of that word of mouth publicity, in the following year, you've got 500 people doing it. Now, how do you sustain that? So it's the scale and the temporality that becomes a problem. And therefore, what is once a very good model becomes redundant fairly soon. So if you are an environmentalist and you are concerned about where we're headed, should you be anti-pilgrimage? Ah, well, at the risk of saying, no, I think what we are concerned about in general is the magnitude of it, but also the kind of consumerism that's coming in pilgrimage travel now. What we are finding more and more is people are actually preferring to stay in hotels and having more facilities. And particularly, I'm talking about Asia because suddenly tourism has become the most important. There's a lot of disposable income that people have now to avail of these facilities. Even 20 years ago, somebody who was going on pilgrimage was happy to go on a train, get in a little bus, stay in one of the pilgrimins or dharamshala or ashram and then do all of that. But today's preferences have changed. The consumers are looking for more facilities and there are people who are providing more facilities, right? That's the catch situation because the more facilities you produce, the larger influx comes in because they know the accommodation is available, food is available. I've just recently written a paper on this on a place called Shirdi, which has got about 12 million people every year. And it's a matter of just last 30 years that it's gone from 5,000 people on a day to now about 75,000 people in a day. And that's primarily because, of course, the spiritual, what we call the spirit of the place or the spiritual magnetism or whatever you want to call it, people feel for that place. And therefore they go, they feel the sacred power and they go. But when physical reality, it's completely transformed. Coming back to that point of what is sustainable, how do you start then responding to this is one, can we control this urban development to some extent? Can we regulate that? Regulation of activities and diversion of funds. Religious authorities or religious organizations are mainly focused on serving their own constituency, right? Making facilities for pilgrim. But if they were also to do some more environment-friendly stuff, that's possible. So I can give you one example. There's a particular temple in Delhi. And then we offer flowers in temples as, as a Hindu ritual. We offer flowers. So what this particular temple does is just collects all the flowers and recycles them into compostable waste, incense sticks, a whole range of other things that could be made out of flowers. Now, but this is only one sporadic example. The others are not motivated enough. So the second part is, how do you broaden the workspace or the work agenda of religious organizations? So those are the two major ones, because see, it's only those guys that people will listen to. They don't listen to governments, right? Because this is a matter of heart. This is a matter of devotion. This is a matter of emotion. If the leader tells us something, if, if you know the priest or somebody in the church tells us don't do this, then out of fear of God or out of love of God, whichever way you want us to do it, we will follow that. But think about a counselor trying to tell you something. Do this. Ah, that's not for me. I agree with Kieran that there probably needs to be some sort of shift in terms of the attitudes that pilgrims and that religious leaders have when it comes to pilgrimage and in sustainable development. I also think back to your question about should environmentalists be anti-pilgrimage? Well, if you're going to be anti-pilgrimage, then you have to be anti-mobility. 
because people are going to travel. With COVID-19 and everything that's happened this past year, there's been a structural shift in limiting people's mobilities. Governments have shut down borders. Health workers have said, stay home, don't travel, don't go anywhere. And there's been talk in the tourism literature and even, even by the tourism media about the creation of a new normal. Because we see the positive environmental impacts of less people traveling locally, domestically, nationally, internationally, what can be done to maintain this environmental sustainability in the face of the end of COVID-19 and a return to some sort of normal? And so they talk about creating a new normal where we encourage people to travel less. We encourage people to travel more locally and regionally and not internationally. I have read things in the media, people who have suggested that what we do is we make it more difficult for people to fly. We raise the prices of flights. What this means then is that you're limiting mobility to those that can afford these flights, the wealthy people. So if you want to be anti-pilgrimage as an environmentalist, you can, but then what you need to do to make things sustainable is to actually change the whole mobility infrastructure and who gets access to mobility and who does not get access to mobility. And that becomes a really political question as well. There is another dimension to this whole mobility part of it. It's a matter of heart, right? It's a matter of faith. It's a practice. It's, it's something somebody wants to feel comfortable in company of God or sacred or whatever you want to call it, right? It's an inner need. Therefore, it would be very difficult to say, oh, you don't go on pilgrimage. I mean, look at the whole history of pilgrimage sites. If a disease would have changed people's mobility, then we would not have had sacred sites because it's essentially in Mecca. It's essentially in Bethlehem. It's essentially in all these iconic religious sites that people have traveled for ages. And these were the hubs, the fertile grounds for spread of diseases. The entire colonial medicine relied on controlling epidemics, right? And all of them were in sacred sites. And still, years now, decades later, they're all flourishing. In a long chain of events, these are very small disruptions because the fundamental need of a human being is to be in the close proximity of their gods or you know, whatever term you want to use it, the sacred power. And I think we are seeing that revival again, but with a difference. By and large, we have become more conscious of our own consumptions. We have not seen what happened 80 years ago, right? But now we are seeing that in one year, if the sites go back to their less crowded positions, then they have a better chance to regenerate, recoup the environmental features and all of that, which means now that gives us a little more food for thought of saying, reflect back on our own consumerism. Now, suddenly people are talking about, we've got you know a million plastic bottles off the streets. That's such a huge impact. And I think that is going to add to the consciousness of travel. And that consciousness is connected to the religious and the spiritual. Should environmentalists be anti-pilgrimage? No, they should not be. They should not be because if they do it, they're going against the fundamental need of a human being. And that will cause a lot of retaliation. Even after the COVID response, if you see when the lockdowns were over across, what were the first places to open? There are two. One was the bars for people to drink, and the second was the temples, at least in India. Because these are, you know, everything else is, is, is in between. So, you know, 
how can we make that sustainable is a different thing. I mean, there's a lot of food for thought that will come in. I mean, we have not breached into that in our book ever as of now, but I think that calls for the next round of discussions. But there will be lots of hopes. In fact, what we are seeing or what we will see now is a change in travel pattern, more and more people going on walking pilgrimages. Some of the things are the realizations, you know, that life can hit you so hard in the face. I mean, some of the earlier pilgrimage motivations, were, those were the motivations that people wanted to over when they were almost kind of closer to their elderly age bracket. That's when they would travel. They've done all of that. But all those uh, dangers are coming in much sooner to us and much faster. So there's a lot of mental reflection that's going to happen. And that's going to force people to find reasons beyond what is existing, what they can see. And therefore, pilgrimages will survive. No doubt about it. In fact, they will become even more sensitive to their natures. This is what my feeling is. All the problems cannot be solved because we're just talking of too many people. Pilgrimage is about too many people. It's no more about the one spiritual solitary person going. Now, that age was gone long back. The discussion we're having right now about sustainability and pilgrimage is also something that's been taking place in tourism studies for a long period of time. One of the things that a lot of tourism scholars are concerned about right now is something we call over-tourism, where you have too many people showing up, for example, in a place like Barcelona, to the point where the locals become anti-tourist and the government becomes anti-Airbnb, that sort of thing. And so now we're talking about what can we do to have under tourism or what can we do to limit the number of people who are coming? I remember going to a conference in Japan last year and one of the speakers was Tony Wheeler. Tony Wheeler was one of the founders of Lonely Planet, the guidebooks. And he said, it's interesting when you go, again, using the example of Barcelona, you go where all the tourists are and it's just inundated with people. You can't move and the local residents just hate this. But if you go two blocks over, there's nobody. So one of the things that COVID has made happen is that people are now engaging in virtual pilgrimages. People are now finding local and regional pilgrimage destinations to go to as well. And so one of the things that could be done to alleviate some of this congestion at these particular locations is you spread the impacts out between local regional, national, and international sites. Everyone wants to go to the big site, but then what can you do once they're there to go into other places to spread the money around, but also to spread the environmental impacts around as well? So I think introducing pilgrims saying, I can go to the big international site, but I can also have very similar experiences by going to some of these local and regional shrines and temples might also be a way of trying to alleviate in the short and the long term, some of these really negative impacts that we find at high visited sites. Thank you both for those responses for that discussion. I, I realized that the question I asked may have just sounded gratuitously provocative, but when I hear you talking about how on earth can you have sustainability when you're drawing millions and millions of people to a particular destination is to throw up my hands and say, you can't do it. And so if we care about where we're headed, then we have to take some drastic measures. But I, I also hear what you're saying here, that those drastic measures are not going to be supported. They're not going to be met with anything resembling widespread support. So strategies that are going to work and, and prove effective 
have to be more moderate in nature and more thoughtful and more nuanced. And what you've described make a lot of sense. There's one other thing that I wanted to ask you about, and it wasn't something that I had initially thought about including here. As Daniel mentioned before, you have a fairly expansive or, or inclusive way of approaching environment in your book. And Kieran, you brought this up a moment ago, the issue of infectious disease comes up in the book. Daniel wrote a chapter on it. And what excellent timing you have, Daniel. I couldn't help but ask you about your work on pilgrimage and infectious disease. And of course it was written pre-COVID, but what did you learn in researching and writing about that that could inform what's ahead as pilgrimages look to reopen? The idea of pilgrimage as a vector of disease is something that has been written about in particular with the Hodge. For a couple of centuries now, the Hodge has been extremely medicalized in the sense that they would need to make sure you have all your vaccinations, that if there's some sort of disease running through the country you're coming from, you have those vaccinations and those shots as well. This is in part because in the 1800s, there would be Europeans participating in the Hodge, returning back to Europe, and also we get these outbreaks of infectious diseases. So I was reading a little bit about this, and I started to think, well, why is it that everyone's talking about the Hodge, but no one's talking about these massive pilgrimage events in India, for example, where you get tens of millions of people showing up. No one ever talks about that. And so that kind of got me just interested in this, this idea. But I think what we're going to find, though, is we're going to see the Hodge model taking place, where it's going to be extremely medicalized. In the same way that tourism was viewed as a spreader of COVID-19, so were these mass religious events. And so when you start to see things going back to normal, whether it's a new normal or the old normal, whatever the case is, you're going to probably see governments be a bit more concerned and selective about who they let into their countries. And this becomes an issue with pilgrimage, because if you're a pilgrim, I want to go to this religious site. God will protect me. God will take care of me. But governments will say, well, you are actually potentially a threat to our particular society. So what might happen in the future is if you want to participate in a particular pilgrimage, here are the medical hoops that you have to go through in order to participate. Now with the Hajj, that's a once a year thing, but they also have the Umrah, which is all year round. And so this is something, this surveillance, this idea of basically opening up your medical history to foreign powers and countries might dissuade some people to go. But at the same time, this might be what has to be done in order to stop these mass religious events as super spreaders of disease. As we speak, the mass spreader event is already taking place in India. The Kumbh Mela, as we call the other Kumbh Mela, is already happening in Vrindavan, which is where my PhD is done. And most of my work kind of originates in that context. And we are seeing the huge restrictions coming into play. But in spite of restrictions and everything, I mean, 1.5 meters apart. I mean, are you kidding? It's just impossible. I mean, it's just impossible. That's one. Second, regardless of what happens, see, this is something that is very unique to religious travel and pilgrimage. The pressure to keep the traditions alive and the rituals alive is humongous. It's on the religious authorities. It's on the gurus. It's on, it's on every, because that's the nerve. That's the nerve center of the religion. 
And if you don't do these activities or these events, then you would have failed yourself as a human being. I mean, that's the perception, right? So last year we kept hearing about it. First time in the history of Hajj, this has not happened. First time in the history of Pandarpur that this has not happened. First time in the history, it's not happened. The last year was just historical, right? But what you see is an adaptation to all of this. So for example, I can talk about the Pandarpur pilgrimage. So last year, Pandarpur Palki, which typically would have 500,000 people, half a million people, they had just one helicopter, which picked up the kind of the sandals of the guru and took it to Pandarpur and just avoid contact. But they did that because that's the ritual that's to be done. So you have to find out or else there were kind of 20 people who were just given, only 20 people who were given the exclusive permission to travel and do that whole thing. And instead of walking, they were going into their cars and just doing it because that's what's required. So same with the Kumbh Mela. You might say what's happening in the world and everything, COVID and COVID and COVID. But this is an event that has survived centuries, millenniums. You just cannot not do it. So if you look at the history that Daniel about, it was in Hajj, but it was equally significant in shaping the pilgrimage landscape in India because there are historical evidences, and I've done that in my work previously, is that they would actually strip off the pilgrims who were coming onto a sacred site before they entered into it. The whole concept of staying in tents before you actually enter the sacred city or sacred town were all part of medical control. But that does not dissuade the really religious zealots, right? And, and that's what happens. So in spite of all the pandemic that we're talking about, we still have our Kumbh Mela going on right now. But with, of course, it's scaled down, no doubt about it. And, and people also realize that they cannot be religious fanatics at this time. So the attendance at these Kumbh Melas have, have reduced dramatically because people can't travel. So there is a dramatic change that's happening in the way we are moving and we will move in future. And I'll give you one last example on this one. My father-in-law, a very educated man, a lawyer. Now he has this thing that on his birthday every year in February, he has to go to Vaishno Devi. Now Vaishno Devi is a big pilgrimage site up in the Himalayas, uh, Jammu Kashmir, you know, north of India, very difficult temperatures and everything. Now, in spite of COVID, in spite of his health, he's about 72. He still said, no, I want to go. Doesn't matter. It is my contract with my God that on my every birthday, I'm going to see the car. So he takes flights straight from Pune, where I live. He goes through three flights, gets a chartered helicopter, gets there, comes back. And then we are all relieved. I, this is what we talk about educated people and the faith overtaking the subconscious, utilitarian, educated mind. Then you think about people who are not educated, who have so much of faith in their religious structures. People make their own judicious decisions about where to draw a line when we are talking of diseases and pilgrimages. Another issue that might arise is the idea of pilgrimage is a very embodied experience. It's about touch. It's about sight. It's about taste. It's about feeling. It's breathing in the incense, for example, or everyone touching something for good luck. And how are rituals going to change? What about taking holy water at Lourdes, for example? Is that something that is going to stop? 
because somebody might touch the water with their hands and all of a sudden, you know, there's a disease that's being passed around. So I think there might be a, a fundamental shift in the way that rituals are actually done. I wonder if they're going to be less embodied as they are presently, where now you're not going to put incense in the air because people are breathing, right? So that becomes an issue. What's in the air? Who's touching what? Sanitization. I think Kieran's right. We're going to be much more aware of the proximity of people towards us, the air that we're breathing, the things that we're touching. We're going to be much more sanitized in nature. I'm just wondering what effect, if any, this will have on the actual rituals that take place at these sites because of this health consciousness that people are having. This has been fascinating. Thank you both. I really appreciate your expertise. Thanks, Dave. Thank you for the opportunity to spend a few minutes with you. Reverend Canon Caroline Pinchbeck is currently based in the York Diocese, where she attends to three parishes, oversees 31 churches, and serves as the rural advisor for the diocese. She previously served in the Canterbury Diocese, where she became involved in the European Green Pilgrimage Network, a faith-based network focused on greening pilgrimage sites. Thanks for joining me today, Reverend Caroline. Oh, that's all right. It's good. It's always good to share the message. Let's talk about Green Pilgrimage then. What is the European Green Pilgrimage Network and and how did that all come about? So it all came about because originally there was an organisation called uh, the Alliance of Religions and Conservation, a charity which worked with Muslims, Hindus, Jains, Buddhists, everything. Um, And it was connected to an organisation with Prince Philip and the World Wildlife Fund as well. So that's how it all came about, through contact. And one of the things that they were looking at was pilgrimage, not not just specifically Christian, but because of Muslim pilgrimages like the Hajj or something where there are millions of people and Hindus, India, you know, they're talking about millions and millions of pilgrims. And one of the things was the amount of plastic water bottles that would be left because you've got millions of people one of the Muslim ones in Africa, it was uh, flip-flops because they have to, they're meant to walk bare feet. And so they're all this discarded waste from all these pilgrims. And you're going, well, you know, that sort of negates the religious significance of what you are doing. In one sense, the point of pilgrimage is not to leave your footprint on the earth. It's, it's meant to be very light. And so the Alliance of Religions and Conservation is, was based in, in England. It's sadly, it's, it's sort of reduced its activity. In 2013, they had a big conference in Norway at Trondheim where the Diocese of Canterbury joined, which is to look at working, it would be the religious faith or the sacred shrine working with its local municipality. And so there was a group from New York who were looking at how they might do things and it was by working together you could put the infrastructure in for pilgrims to be able to uh, have sort of sustainability also protecting the environment at the same time 
Canterbury being the Cathedral of the Metropolitical Church of the Anglican Communion is quite significant, but we were looking at it because St Augustine of Canterbury arrived in 597 into Kent. And for the local parish churches in Canterbury Diocese, all of them were somehow involved in the story of the Church of England across the generations. And that's why we joined. So the Europe group, one of the other coordinators is in Trondheim in Norway, and the other one is in Sweden, Vagstena, which is St. Birgitta. And the Swedes have outstripped us in terms of their environmental work and their knowledge. I mean, if you think Greta Thunberg comes from Sweden. <laughs> so Vagstena is in the Diocese of Linköping, where their bishop in the 90s was very pro-pilgrimage. From his really agenda setting, They've worked a long way in terms of looking at the environmental impact of pilgrimage. It's not just about the pilgrim, it's also because you're walking in the middle of nowhere, actually how do we consider the environment, climate change and things like that as well. And that's the difficulty with pilgrimage because there's, I mean, I was reflecting on it yesterday, you know, there's a whole debate about whether you're a visitor, whether you're a pilgrim and the nuances in between, but it gets very exciting sometimes. <laughs> Back in 2013, one of the insurance companies in England, a big one, looked at the spirituality of 18 to 25-year-olds and the spiritual tourism industry amongst that age group was worth about £5 billion in 2013. You know, and that's in England because people were going to India, places like that. When people say young people are not spiritual, actually they are. They're looking for something. It's it's just how do we define it in traditional sort of faiths and denominations. You talked about the role of waste in pilgrimage and the risk of that. So many people, so many disposable objects. I wonder if there are other ways in which the pursuit of environmental sustainability and pilgrimage coincide. What makes that a fruitful zone of convergence? Well, it was getting the religious places and shrines to look at their offer to the pilgrims. So might they have water fountains? How do they look at hospitality? I mean, if you look at the Sikhs at the Golden Temple, they're very swift and a very efficient hospitality to the pilgrims. You know, there's no booking required. They can adapt. I mean, it's phenomenal, their organisation. I mean, it makes pitiable what we offer. It's like a small church potluck supper or something like that. And we can't even arrange that, you know. So it was a real encouragement with the municipalities involved, looking at its own transport infrastructure. How could pilgrims move? And for the Swedes, our Swedish colleagues, they have a certain criteria that if they're traveling abroad, they have to go by train, they can't go by aeroplane. It's really adapting their lifestyles and sometimes the cost of that hmm. in terms of what you're doing. And I think that's particularly with the tourism industry, you know, look at places like Venice where there's millions of people going, well, they're not at the moment, but in these huge cruise liners and you're going, well, what's the point of that? It's destroying the heritage has this resulted in Canterbury or where you have been involved in practical changes that you can describe? The classic example is the Camino to Santiago. They have, because of the increase of pilgrims, have really looked at their offer, which then has 
our colleagues in Norway have looked at their local industry, their hostels, and making sure so that for Norway it's the St. Olaf way. They've ensured it's local businesses, but their offer is local food that you could go almost from village to village if you needed to. And the provision, so people don't have to take much, but they can also make sure they've got water. They're not, they're equipped in in terms of nourishment and things like that. Everybody goes on about the Camino to Santiago because 15 years ago there were about 10,000 and now there's a quarter of a million pilgrims. And you're going, in some ways, that destroys the whole concept of pilgrimage. I mean, a quarter of a million is a pittance compared to the Muslims and the Hindus, you know, because they have literally millions. Some of their big pilgrimage events, they have five million people. To go into it wholeheartedly when you're looking at pilgrimage or the offer of pilgrimage is suggesting to the person, in one sense, why are you doing this and the impact of what you were doing is going off grid and things like that. But yeah, everybody wants their mobile phone and their Wi-Fi and you're going, but that's not the point. And so there's a real, to go into it wholeheartedly is a real challenge. The whole narrative about pilgrimage would say, once you've done your first one, you become a bit of a pilgrimage junkie, but I think also your home, your lifestyle to that. Are there solutions to the environmental impact caused by a quarter of a million, a third of a million people walking this trail over and over again. And there are a ton of plastic bottles. But to me, like the question is the impact of the wear and tear on that ground. Supposedly, I'm I'm meant to be doing the Camino in May and looking at the Facebook pages. And it does cause you, I mean, it does certainly me, because you go, well, there's these hundreds of people from, a lot of people from America or Canada or where like that traveling to go and do the Camino and and you're just going it just destroys what you're trying to do in a way but then the whole pilgrimage I mean look at the Via Francigena from Canterbury to Rome well they're looking at trying to support and enhance rural businesses well small regions how do you bring life to their economy and one way of doing it there's, there's a route and people often will do the Camino, then they will do the Via Francigena, and then they will go to Constantinople or in Jerusalem, you know, because you've always got to extend more. But I think it's probably in doing it that, that you're actually caused to reflect because you realise a lot of the pilgrims on the Camino, if you look at the testimonies, will say, we had far too much stuff when we first started. They read all the books and everything, but until you actually do it, you don't realise how little you need. But equally, the Camino economically is geared up to, you should, they say, between 25 and 30 euros a day. There's no way you could do that in England. Accommodation is far too expensive. And that was one of the problems that we had. The local tourism authority connected with us and we were conversations with them. But everybody wants, you know, it's the boutique hotel industry rather than some scruffy walkers in the <laughs> With, well, in England, it's usually mud and crud and everything like that. You know? <laughs> and so there was a real dilemma because it was a concept that we couldn't really understand mm. and the expectation of what accommodation should look like in England is very different from the continent. But it's probably why we, bre- we had Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I once walked to Canterbury and 
I definitely spent more on accommodation, but I also got a feather bed the size of a boat to sleep on. So yeah, I mean, I think it's. I mean, certainly in England, historically, pilgrimage after Henry VIII was not the concept that we thought of, and that's it's coming back. And there are huge, the pilgrimage industry in the last five years in England has just flourished. But I think it's a nice spiritual concept, whereas the Camino, I think, is much more a broader audience. And I don't know why that is. Maybe that's people who are driving the agenda. But in some ways, there's very little conversation about the environmental impact or the consideration of care for creation is what we would say, certainly in church terms, Mm. what is our care and stewardship of creation. I'm actually interested in that. On your organization's website, there's a discussion about the importance of defining one's faith's theology of the environment. Yeah, yeah. Can you talk broadly about that? And then also just from your specific faith perspective, what is your theology of the environment? Particularly with the Hindus and Islam, a lot of people would not think that Islam is part of the climate change debate. And yet, if you think the root of all faiths pretty much is the Abrahamic faiths, so creation in Hinduism, the epic of Gilgamesh and how creation, all the faith creation stories have resonances with one with another. And there's always the interrelationship of God or gods and our stewardship with that, I would say, is a commonality between all the faiths. Within Christianity, it becomes a bit of an interesting debate, isn't it? Because stewardship for sometimes humans have dominion over creation. You're going, but that's good in one sense, but also we have to care for it in another sense, you know, and how do we particularly in England, we've got no space for houses. So we're destroying our water table so that houses are being built, which will get flooded out. We know that, but people have lost that concept of it. We found with coronavirus, actually, most of our food is exported. And so in terms of national security, we would only have about five days and and less than that because people panic. So in some ways, for food and fuel, if you're looking at sort of gas or petrol or something like that, it would last about 48 hours. And so the Church of England has a massive campaign in terms of the environment and our care for it. But how we bring that economic dimension is one that never gets really talked about, particularly from my portfolio, which is always the rural one. You're going, well, we need farmers. The landscape that we have has been cared and nurtured for and, and managed to look like it does and you have to you have to I mean one thing with coronavirus is certainly in England people are moving back to rural areas so that's going to be a really interesting debate as to why people are looking at space and how they see the countryside and things like that. One of the foundational challenges of the environmental movement has been trying to push back at this narrative that the economy and green movements are oppositional forces. Yeah yeah it's preservation isn't it preservation and conservation is the one thing Mm -hmm. certainly in England for most people they're sort of climate change deniers because it's not going to happen in our lifetime so something 2050 2060 or something like that for most people is not a concept and how do we look forward another piece of work and you're going well we should have somebody's written a 10-year plan and you're going well that's pointless because nobody has a concept of 10 years. 
I don't know how it is in America, but in England, most people would not have a job for 10 years nowadays. And looking at economically, the World Economic Forum did research in 2018 saying that grade one to grade four will have a job that doesn't exist at the moment when they grow up. And you're going, well, that's huge. I'm sure at the moment, you know, working from home has changed things. So coming out of coronavirus is going to be interesting in a good way, I hope. If coming out of coronavirus is in a bad way relative to what we've gone through, then we're in real trouble. (laughs) Well, the world has slowed down, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. We were talking about it the other day and you're saying, well, for me, life is like a dynamo. If you're going at a constant pace, you will constantly go there. Once you slow down, the energy to speed up is huge. In some ways, that is the aims of pilgrimage, really, is to slow down and and to do things that are humanly possible. In a humanly possible time frame. I don't know how it's like for you, but you know, we get people if you don't haven't responded to an email within five minutes, they think you're dead, you know, and that's like and you go, Well, no, it's just because I'm doing something else. Or, you, know. you know, and I don't think the speed is humanly how we engage with information is so different. It's good. I'm not demeaning or the positivities of technology, it's great. We wouldn't be talking. But the flip side of that is, well, no wonder everybody's stressed out. Mental health and things like that is quite worrying. But for me, that, again, is an element of pilgrimage, isn't it? Is is what is the resilience within yourself to have time on your own? For a lot of people to be on their own is really, really fearful. Mm-hmm. You know, it's their absolute worst nightmare. And actually meeting other people and sharing experiences, you know, because... I don't know about you, but we've got stranger danger, which is an absolute nightmare. So nobody talks to anybody anymore. Yeah. If you do, they're they're almost ready to mug you because you're dodgy. We have the same narratives that circulate and scare the hell out of everybody. One of the things I really appreciated reading through the European Green Pilgrimage Network's website is all of the attention to structural issues and the practical advice and recommendations for how countries and cities can go about greening their approach to pilgrimage. And you've touched on some of those, but I'm interested in sort of wrapping up by thinking about on the personal, the individual level for people listening who are looking forward to someday going on pilgrimage when the coronavirus is over, what should they think about as they plan and as they conduct their pilgrimage to ensure that they are carrying out a green pilgrimage? I mean, it's looking at the structures in a way. It's about planning and processing and in some ways being strategic about the knock-on effects. You know, I think the problem is for a lot of pilgrims, they think, oh, it's great, we're going on a walk and they'll have a rucksack or something like that and their phones, it's sort of what equipment or needs we have and are they really what we need because at the end of the day when you're a pilgrim all you need is a bed and need to get washed you don't need the creature comforts you're too tired to even need that there is that element of hospitality you know and that's a thread through pilgrimages in one sense you're vulnerable not in a malicious way but you're vulnerable to the people that you meet and need that openness So in some ways, it is preparing the person for, in one sense, are you wanting to be changed or do you want to stay the same? You get a richer experience by wanting to change. If you want to stay the same, it will be harder because you will change, but you'll be out of your comfort zone 
one of my friends in their church, they have a big evangelical church, and it says, you know, life begins beyond your comfort zone. And again, that is the simple philosophy is if you really want to have that rich experience, is going beyond, but also are you willing to take the bare necessities of what you need? And what do you really need? Because everybody always says they throw half of what they need away, you know. (laughs) I'm struck by the fact that your answer to how to carry out a green pilgrimage is pretty much the same answer that I get if I ask someone like how to carry out a meaningful pilgrimage. The answers are one and the same. It's about simplicity, isn't it? At the end of the day, it's simplicity. And part of the environmental debate is actually, what do we need? I mean, it's the whole sort of decluttering debate. I mean, that's a huge market and industry. And again, it's because people buy stuff that they really don't need. In one sense, pilgrimage is holistic for life and for the world, isn't it? Because it's saying, what do we really need? It's the small things that are the essentials. At the end of the day, it's human conversation. It's human reliance on one another but also actually considering what our impact has on other people which for me particularly in green pilgrimages you don't leave your footprint you don't leave your graffiti on the I mean if you look at the old we went to a church in Italy and everybody's put handprints and graffiti you know and it's not something that's new but in one sense our human need is to leave a place on the world that's our self-identity is by leaving something of us and again, but that's not what we're meant to be doing. We're meant to be leaving the world in a good state for future generations, not as a memorial to each of us, really. And that's really hard because we want to feel that we've got value. We're, we're humans, aren't we? And that regardless of faith, it is always about community and about being in community with people. And what are we passing on to future generations? Awesome. Well, I think Toby has been very patient these past 15 minutes, so I think Toby deserves a walk, but I thank you for sharing some thoughts with me about this work. It's really challenging. For me, it's always working with other colleagues, whether that's here or abroad, is actually you critique one another's work and you can see the example of others and how things can be realised. And also by visiting something else, you learn more because you're beyond your perspective, really. And that's so important. I hadn't planned to ask Daniel and Kieran that blunt question that I dropped on them about whether environmentalists should be anti-pilgrimage. I opened my mouth and it just sort of came out. In making this episode, though, I was struck by how pilgrimage can simultaneously be part of the problem and part of the solution when it comes to environmental sustainability. As Yeb showed, and as we all know, pilgrimage provides an incredible opportunity for dialogue and connections to break down some of the ideological walls that divide us and achieve shared understanding. And if Daniel and Kieran showed the worrying hypocrisy that often plagues pilgrimage with the faithful not living their beliefs in toto while on the road, Caroline also showed the potential of spurring religious leaders to think more intentionally about their own faith's environmental theology and then communicating that to the faithful. And beyond all of that, 
Caroline's observation that pilgrimage can, in effect, be a training ground for developing a greener lifestyle rings true. And maybe that shouldn't be necessary. Maybe we should just be able to rationally adopt all of the best practices for living sustainably. We are confoundingly good, though, at acting against our interests in all kinds of spectacularly silly and catastrophically dire ways. And some lessons have to be learned through deep experience. What matters, I suppose, is that we do, in fact, learn and carry the lesson forward. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Yeb Sanyo. You can read more about his work at climatepilgrimage.com and in Alan Burns' book on the 2015 walk, A Walk for Climate Justice. Thanks as well to Kieran and Daniel. Their book, Religious Tourism and the Environment, is a great introduction to the state of research on this subject. Finally, I'm also grateful to Reverend Ken and Caroline Hinchbeck. You can learn more about the European Green Pilgrimage Network at greenpilgrimageeurope.net. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com or through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. Thank you, as always, for listening. Maybe my baby will never see me.